Well, good morning, friends. Good morning. Hey, um, yeah, my name is Pastor Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're new or visiting us for the first time, we want to we welcome you. It's a privilege to have you here uh, with us. Uh, but again, before we get started, um, sharing your vulnerability and your brokenness takes courage and humility. And I just I want to thank Amy again for doing that. Um, thank you, Amy. Um, but as we begin our, our Broken Together series this morning, uh, it is important to acknowledge what each of us inherently knows and what Scripture also tells us. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Due to the impact of sin, what God created and called good has been corrupted. Scripture tells us in Romans 8, through 23, that all of creation is groaning as a result of this brokenness and waits in, in an anticipation for its healing. And while much of that brokenness is evident around us, but separate from us, the reality is we have all been marred by the impact of sin and are profoundly broken ourselves. And while the places of brokenness within us differ, we are all broken, and in some ways walk with a limp and carry wounds and burdens of that brokenness. And yet, as Christ's followers, those of us who have been adopted by grace into his family, he gives us each other on this journey as we wait for the full redemption of our minds and our bodies. This morning, I want us to take some time to look at how he desires for us to be a community and broken together. And then what that looks like specifically in one area of brokenness, and now what is the most common disability experience worldwide, depression. Today, rates of suicide, which are often associated with an ongoing struggle with severe clinical depression, are rising at an alarming rate. With the release of the second season of 13 Reasons Why and the much-publicized deaths of what seems like countless celebrities like Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, who both struggled with depression, our youth are also surrounded now by friends and acquaintances experiencing depression and tragically may know some who have ended their own lives. And the burden of brokenness that comes from depression is just as prevalent in the church. Christianity today refers to depression as the church's best kept secret. And though depression has received increased awareness in the church since Rick and Kay Warren's son Matthew took his own life after a long battle with depression, friends, it is still a topic that is largely avoided. Yet its prevalence is undeniable. One in three people in the church have experienced depression. And 36% of the women and 24% of the men who have experienced depression end up no longer attending church because they felt misunderstood, unsupported, and all too often experienced some form of shame when revealing their battle with depression. Friends, would you agree with me that this is tragic? And I'm certain it breaks Jesus' heart. This morning, we're going to be primarily in two different passages, Galatians 6 and Matthew 26. 
So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Galatians 6. If not, there should be one available in the rack in front of you. And if not, no worries, just follow along up on the screen. But we're going we're gonna to primarily focus on a couple verses in those passages. But before we get going, I want to make sure that we understand the landscape of this text. As each of us knows, every pastor has his or her own preaching style. Dave is warm and engaging. Gabby is full of energy and passion. Carl just has that voice that makes you want to listen, right? And Nick, he has that preach it white boy thing going on. (laughs) Pastors also have a way they typically like to begin their sermons and ways they like to close them. Some like to leave their listeners with a really encouraging word. I had a camp speaker I heard a few times who always seemed to end his sermon with a story about someone dying, proclaiming the gospel, and then would invite all of us to come up to commit to being missionaries. And we almost always did. I also had a young life leader I knew in college who got so amped up at the end of one of his sermons, he just actually passed out. (laughs) Well, Paul is no different. I'm not sure if he ever passed out after preaching. But he, he has a distinct manner he often likes to end his teachings. When Paul gets to, end, to the end of his letters, his pattern is to rattle off a litany of really practical instructions. At first glance, they read like a bunch of random standalone proverbs, as if he's saying, and remember this, and don't forget this. But they are all really not random at all. These instructions are practical outworkings of the gospel. And near the end of chapter 5 in Galatians and into chapter 6 is where Paul begins to share those practical outworkings of the gospel based on what he has discussed in the previous chapters. But let's go ahead and read the first two two verses of chapter 6, and then I want us to focus on one of them specifically. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So I want us to really hone in on verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, in context, he's talking about bearing burden caused by sinfulness. But you can expand the principle to any burden we see others bearing. Why? Because Christ took on all of our burdens that weren't his. He took on our greatest burden of sin and all of our brokenness. For Paul... Verse 2 and the command to carry each other's burdens is rooted in the gospel. Christ carried our burdens, thus he invites us to respond to his love by carrying each other's burdens. And the law of Christ Paul is referring to is exactly that. We should voluntarily carry each other's burden. And in doing so, reflect what he has done for us on the cross by carrying our burden of sin. And friends, the burden we help carry for each other could be financial burden, a burden due to inequality or lack of equity, the consequences of sin, or simply our burden from being broken people living in a 
fallen world. It makes no difference. Because again for Paul, this way of living is deeply rooted in the gospel. And this is how he invites us to live broken together. And friends, brokenness can bring burden that is crushing without others to help us carry it. But if we are honest, if I am honest, most of us don't mind caring for another person just so long as it doesn't cost us anything. We want to give without feeling the burden ourselves. But that is not how people who have experienced the gospel should respond. When we remember how Jesus stepped into our mess and carried the full weight of the burden of our sin so that we could be in relationship with him, it truly becomes an act of worship to carry one another's burdens and reflect what he has done for us. Now, during our Broken Together series, we're going to look at different areas of brokenness that we experience. But in the remaining time we have this morning, I want to unpack three things we can do in order to be a community that helps carry the burden of brokenness our brothers and sisters who are experiencing depression in our midst carry. The first is resist the stigma. The second, remain present. And the third, remind them of God's promises to them. But first, resist the stigma. Author Brene Brown says, Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Like Amy, I want to be courageous this morning by being vulnerable with you about my own story. One area in my life where I have become most familiar with my brokenness is in my struggle with depression over the last 20 years. In my early 20s and soon after Bethany and I were married, my struggle with depression set upon me with a weight I had never experienced before. I remember feeling like I was in a cloud that just would not lift. My days were filled with trying to make it from one activity to another and fulfilling job responsibilities that had felt mundane in the past began to feel monumental, like I was running a marathon with a weight vest on. I remember sharing with some of my closest Christian friends about what I was experiencing. Sadly, and I know simply due to ignorance, rather than offering me comfort, I remember one telling me that I needed to just start trying harder to find my hope in Jesus. And I remember trying so hard and wanting so desperately to find my hope and joy in the Lord, but it just wasn't coming. They would ask me questions like, are you reading your Bible enough? You need to read your Bible more. Are you praying enough? You just need to be praying more. I even had one friend that encouraged me to reprogram all the presets on my car radio because as he contended, if I stopped listening to secular music and instead, of li- instead listened to stations like Caleb, which used the tagline positive and encouraging music, as he reminded me, My mind would dwell on the Lord like it should, and I would stop feeling depressed. And as Scripture directs us, we should always be feasting on God's Word, praying without ceasing, and music truly does impact our spirit. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, it is also possible that we are doing each of those things, and the darkness of depression will not lift. 
And painfully, one of the things I remember most about that season was attempting to hide the fact that I was depressed. Soon after I was diagnosed with depression, I went to seek pastoral counseling. After sharing what I was experiencing, that pastor asked me a question I will never forget. Because what followed it was a level of shame I had never experienced before. He asked me, how can you be a Christian leader if you can't even find your own joy in the Lord? I remember that feeling of shame like it was yesterday. And with that, I knew the church was not a place for me to share the way I was broken. Friends, throughout my season of depression, I realized there truly is a stigma in the church associated with those who are dealing with depression and other forms of emotional brokenness and mental illness. And gang, that stigma is damaging. Our depressed brothers and sisters who are already weak and fully aware of their brokenness often end up feeling even more crushed under the weight of shame they experience in the church. Sadly, that experience of shame is a result of many in the church simply being unaware of the complex nature of the causes for depression. As human beings created in God's image, we are created with a body, a mind, and a spirit. And the impact of the fall can impact each of those areas of our being. However, in many, many in the church believe depression and other forms of mental illness are simply spiritual issues that should only be addressed with spiritual solutions. And while every illness and area of brokenness in our lives, physical and mental, have inherent spiritual components, seeing a mental illness like depression as solely a spiritual issue is both ignorant and sadly perpetuates stigma that the person experiencing depression is simply spiritually deficient in some manner. And this perspective often inflicts additional shame on the sincere follower of Jesus struggling with depression, who desires nothing more than to feel joy in the Lord. Tim Keller points out that we can end up taking a very reductionist approach to depression and mental illness in general if we assume the root cause of depression and mental illness is solely moral or spiritual. Charles Spurgeon who some call the Prince of Preachers, and many consider the greatest preacher in modern history, suffered from depression all his life, in large part due to a physical condition. And while Spurgeon would certainly advocate reading the Bible, being in prayer, and seeking to find our joy in the Lord, as author Randy Alcorn points out when addressing this issue, can you imagine telling Charles Spurgeon that he just needed to read his Bible more or pray more <laughs> so that his depression would abate? There are very few in church history that studied Scripture or prayed more fervently than Charles Spurgeon, friends. And speaking of church history, this reductionist understanding of depression and emotional brokenness is far more of an issue for popular contemporary evangelical circles than it was for the church historically. The Reformers, the Puritans, Luther, Baxter, Newton, Spurgeon, all the way up to Martin Lloyd-Jones, all understood the complex nature of depression and mental illness. 
Now, this is not to say depression is solely a physical condition solved by medication. As Tim Keller points out, that is the reductionist fallacy the world offers, which sees humanity as no more than a body with no spirit. No, the causes of depression are complex because we as human beings are complex. Body, mind, and spirit. Christ's follower and psychologist Ed Welch encourages his patients to explore all the possibilities for what is driving their depression, including a conflation of factors. Assuming only a physical solution when there's spiritual forming that needs to be done is short-sighted. But if someone's depression is a physiological issue, counseling our brother or sister in Christ to pull yourself up by your bootstraps spiritually by reading their Bible or praying more will prove wanting. Because friends, ultimately, if your legs are broken, even if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you will fall. Additionally, if we assume that our brother and sister in Christ is simply deficient spiritually and do not account for the complex factors that may be the origin of their condition, we also risk laying upon them the heavy burden of shame rather than helping them carry their burden as Scripture instructs us to do. And friends, shame makes us want to hide our brokenness, which is counter to, counter to one of the things a person struggling with depression needs most, community. But what is also tragic is that if our depressed brother or sister experiences shame from us, they may conceal it and simply suffer in silence, even while being surrounded by others. And friends, depression is really easy to hide. I was reminded of this sad reality last year. In the midst of my battle with depression in my early 20s, Bethany was a bridesmaid at a wedding of our close friends from college down in Southern California. The husband was a musician who had grown up with members of a band that had become incredibly famous. The setting was beautiful and the people were as well. And I just remember that night at the reception reflecting on how broken I was and how alone I felt. I would just look around at all the guys we were hanging with who looked so full of joy and so unbroken and feel a deep sense of despair. Now, of course, I was comparing myself to a group of super famous rock stars who also happen to be super rich and super good looking, which I guess is always kind of a depressing thing to do. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the feelings of brokenness I had that night, I will never forget. It has now been many years since that night, and my, my battle with depression is over, at least for now. But last summer, the memories of that night all came flooding back when I received news that Linkin Park lead singer Chester Bennington was found dead of an apparent suicide. Chester Bennington was one of those guys we were hanging out with that night. And in the year that has passed since his death, his lifelong struggle with depression has been revealed. Undoubtedly, the night of our friend's wedding, he was carrying the same burden and suffering from the same brokenness I was. I just had no idea, because depression is invisible and so easily concealed. My dear friend Michelle Winter shared something with me that one of our artists in the studio shared with her about depression that I felt described depression perfectly. This person said, depression is like a coat that looks like anyone else's coat, but this coat weighs hundreds of pounds. 
No one realizes that the, coat, the depressed person is wearing weighs hundreds of pounds, but nonetheless, they carry it every day and every night alone. Walking around in the midst of others, carrying the burden of despondency and sorrow that accompanies depression. Easily concealed and hidden from view, knowing they are too weak to handle the extra burden of shame, which might be heaped on them by those who just don't understand. And again, yet the one thing our depressed brothers and sisters need most in Christ's community is for us to help carry that burden. And friends, I remember the day the burden of brokenness I carried alone from my depression began to lighten. It was the day my pastor years ago walked up onto a stage like this and shared his own struggle with depression. And at that moment, I remember thinking, I can be broken here. I honestly left church feeling like a thousand pounds had been lifted off my shoulders. I was still struggling with depression, but I no longer felt alone. Friends, if we do not resist the stigma that depression and other mental illnesses are simply a matter of spiritual deficiency, we will never be able to truly reflect Christ to our brothers and sisters experiencing depression because they will hide it, or even worse, they will leave our community. Friends, the second thing we must do to carry the burden of brokenness our depressed brothers and sisters are experiencing is to remain present with them. In Matthew 26, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing to face the cross the following day, and he is filled with sorrow and despondency. Two feelings very familiar to anyone who's experienced depression. And what was his first response? He reaches out for community, his closest brothers, Peter, James, and John. And then he tells them he is filled with sorrow unto death and asks them to remain with him. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, if you are familiar with the rest of the story, you know Jesus comes back to his disciples nodding off to sleep at least three times. Kind of a case study in not remaining with a friend in the midst of their sorrow and despondency. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus' repeated asking them to remain with him reveals just how important he knew community would be. In his moment of greatest sorrow and despondency, he knew he would need community. I still remember the nights of sleeplessness that I experienced during that season of depression. And some nights I would just be on my knees crying out to God and weeping. And it was those nights especially I found a kinship with the psalmist. Friends, if you want to know what depression is like, read the psalms. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why do I go on mourning? But I remember the times when Bethany would get up and pray over me. For some reason, just knowing she was there, the burden of darkness seemed lighter. 
Author Parker Palmer, who has recorded at least four bouts with depression, shares about one of those seasons and how the simple presence of his friend Bill in his life lightened the burden of his depression. With Palmer's permission, Bill stopped by daily to sit with him and massage his feet. As Palmer said, he found the only place in my body where I could still experience feeling and feel somewhat reconnected with the human race. Bill seldom spoke more than an occasional mirroring statement like, I sense your struggle today, or it feels like you're getting stronger. Palmer wrote, his words were deeply helpful. They reassured me that I could still be seen by someone. But friends, depression and other forms of mental illness can be hard to understand. We may think to ourselves sometimes they make no sense. Mine didn't. I had a beautiful young bride who was an even more beautiful person. I had enough money, and I got to work in ministry, and I was passionate about my job. On paper, my depression made zero sense. But there is danger here, because when we don't understand or we can't fix the person we care about, sometimes we're inclined to just give up and turn away. And this is to say nothing about the fact that hanging out with a depressed person is not that fun sometimes, okay? I know what I was like, and the best description I can give is Winnie the Pooh's donkey friend, Eeyore. That was me. But remember, friends, it's not about us when we remain with our depressed brother or sister. It is about carrying some of their burden of brokenness, loving them, and ultimately, it's about reflecting Jesus who carried our burdens. No matter how confused or frustrated you are by your friend or family member who's depressed, please remain present in their lives. Whether it be a simple email, coffee, or a foot massage. And if you're offering those, you can come by my place anytime. <laughs> but friends, just do not turn away. Because as John Piper points out, the most comforting thing you might say to your depressed friend is, I will hold on to you, and I will not let you go. Finally, friends, we need to remind our depressed brothers and sisters of God's promises to them in the midst of their de depression. But friends, I want to stop here to make something very clear. Reminding must come out of the context of remaining. When we remind our depressed friend of the promises of God while we remain close to them, as Bethany did for me in those dark nights, their burden may lighten. However, if we just quote a few verses to our depressed, depressed friend in passing, it will likely be ineffective and could actually cause them to feel more alone and to feel more shame. It's also not really bearing their burden at all. Instead, it really becomes about us wanting to feel like we did something while at the same time avoiding any cost to ourselves. But friends, in the garden, in the midst of his sorrow and despondency, Jesus asked his disciples to remain with him. Yet what carried him in the end through his sorrow unto death? If we look to Hebrews 12.2, we will find our answer. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, it was clinging to his father's promise of joy to him 
that carried Jesus through the sorrow and despondency. For Randy Alcorn, in his four years of depression, it was the promises of God found in Romans 8 that he clung to through those years. If God is for us, no one can be successful against us. And nothing whatsoever can separate us from the love of God. For me, the promises I would cling to were Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For others, it may be the promises found in Hebrew, Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or maybe it is one of the Psalms, like Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Friends, whatever the promise, it is essential that we remind our depressed brothers and sisters of God's promises to them. Because let me tell you this, depression lies. Depression is a really, really good liar. As Sarah Walton, author Sarah Walton points out, depression tells us if we feel unlovable, we must be unloved. If we feel sadness and hopelessness, we must be hopeless. If we feel lonely, we must be alone. And if we feel shame, we must be unforgiven. And the absolute worst, if I don't feel God's presence or pleasure, I might not truly be his child. That was the lie I remember the most. It is the reason my depression also led me to a long season of doubt. But it was this quote from Charles Spurgeon about his own struggle with depression that I was given during that time that I also remember providing me some real comfort. Spurgeon says, our sense of God's absence does not mean that he is so. Though our bodily gloom allows us no feeling of his tender touch, he holds on to us still. Our feelings of him do not save us. He does. The depressed person sometimes feels like they can't fight to hold on to God's promises, though, because they have no fight left in them. So friends, we must fight for them. When someone in our church is depressed, as Dave said, it must be a rally cry to gather around them and to remain as we remind them of God's promises. Dr. Welch says, even if we can just get a faint amen from them in response to hearing one of God's promises, there is victory. In John Piper's biography on the famous poet and hymn writer William Cowper, Piper describes a lifelong battle with depression Cowper experienced. But he also describes Cowper's lifelong friendship with his pastor and friend, John Newton, who, as a side note, is a pretty good hymn writer himself in that he wrote Amazing Grace. But it was Newton's lifelong friendship that God used to sustain William Cowper, even after he moved away from Cowper. Newton remained with William Cowper throughout his life to the very end. 
even in the final two weeks of Cowper's life, as he lay dying, still depressed, Newton was comforting and reminding him of God's constant presence and eternal promises. Friends, I want to end this morning with two questions. What would it be like if we decided this morning to be a community where it is safe to be vulnerable and authentic about our brokenness? A place where someone like me can say, I can be broken here. And can we commit to not attempting to hide or conceal our brokenness from one another? Because friends, we don't need to. And let's be honest, it's exhausting. We already know what pleases the Lord, and that is a broken and contrite spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. And if we are not willing to be authentic and vulnerable about our brokenness, or are unsafe for others to be vulnerable about theirs, we rob ourselves of the ability for the body of Christ to be what she is meant to be, which is at times the tangible expression of God's love, grace, and mercy to us. Gang, in a moment, we are going to come to Jesus' table to take communion when you're ready. But first, I invite you to take one of those decorative pieces of paper in the rack in front of you. Choose one that resonates with you. Then take a few moments to just sit in the presence of God and our church family. Allow yourself to feel the aloneness or isolation you have experienced trying to carry the burden of your brokenness on your own. These are feelings we bring to God today and we invite him to speak back to them. If you feel comfortable, write down the area of brokenness in your life that you no longer want to conceal. If not, feel free to leave it blank. Maybe you struggle with depression or anxiety. Maybe it's an addiction that you need help with. Maybe it's pride or that you have hurt those you love deeply. Whatever it is, we invite you to bring it forward and you can place it in the holes in the wall on the frames to the side of the auditorium here. And then as we come to take communion, remember this. Remember what the bread and the wine represent. Christ was broken for us and lifted our greatest burden. And because of that, one day, whatever burdens of brokenness you experience will be lifted. The lame will walk, the blind will see, and the depressed will no longer have to fight for hope because the fullness of our hope will be realized as we stand before our Father and receive his embrace. Amen. Come to his table.